This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're looking this morning at uh, verses 21 through 35. Earlier in this chapter, a question from Jesus' disciples led Jesus to give one of his most significant talks that he gave on the relationships that Christians were to have with one another. Uh, And that question was, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answered this question that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the person who promotes obedience to God's word in humility in others and in himself. And Jesus talked about causing one of his little ones to stumble, one of them to sin and the dire consequences of that. But the, the opposite of that is cultivating obedience and holiness in one another. And, of course, that begins in ourselves, as Jesus said, taking sin very seriously in our own lives. Uh, and, and he goes on to speak of the Father's own care, even for one individual sheep. And therefore, we should see those sheep, even uh, just one, as valuable, that they are people valued by the Father, redeemed by Christ, if they're a Christian, and not someone we are to use, but someone we are to love. Well, Jesus anticipates a thought in the disciples' mind, what if somebody sins against me? What if it's someone who's done me wrong? And he uh, he sets out the process that we looked at last week, the, the process that uh, starts personally, privately, but if followed through, if necessary, leads to uh, bringing the unrepentant person ultimately under the authority of the church. And as Jesus is teaching this, the disciples are soaking it up, uh, soaking up Jesus' teaching, uh, thinking through what he's saying. But obviously, Peter's mind is turning over and It raises a question, all that Jesus has been saying in Peter's mind. So we take up our reading in chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask now as we take up this study of your scriptures, that your spirit will teach us, impress upon our hearts, Lord, with only uh, the power that you wield, that supernatural divine power, uh, the truths of your word, the solemnity, the weightiness uh, of this parable that Jesus tells. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, Andre Sue, a columnist with World Magazine, penned these words. Forgiving is the hardest thing you will ever do. That's why most people don't do it. We talk about it, cheer for it, preach on it, and are sure we've practiced it. But mostly the illusion of having forgiven is that the passage of time dulls memory. The ruse will come to light with hair-trigger vengeance when fresh offense hurls in to empty out the gunny sack of half-digested grievances. I asked a few people if they'd ever forgiven someone and what it felt like. They gave me answers so pious, I knew they'd never done it. Peter, like Andre Sue, is wrestling uh, with this question of forgiveness. And uh, certainly Christians ever since uh, have wrestled with the implications of Jesus' teaching about forgiving others. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, Peter says, and I forgive him? You know, Jesus, what if we go to the person, as you said here, and talk it out and hear an apology, and the person asks our forgiveness, and we give that forgiveness And not long afterwards, he sins against us again and again and again. Or what if someone sins against us just one time, but it's a sin so heinous, so vile, so hurtful that it changes our lives? In other words, how many times do we forgive? How much do we forgive? At what point does that well of forgiveness run dry? Peter suggests an answer here to his own question, maybe in case Jesus needed help with a starting point just to get the discussion going. Uh, And actually, Peter may have thought that his suggestion here was rather a big-hearted response that he gives to Jesus here in answer to his own question Uh, Peter was probably aware that the Jewish rabbis had discussed this very point among themselves many times. How many times do we forgive someone when he sins against us? And the rabbis came up with a very reasonable conclusion. Three times. Three times you forgive. Fourth time, no forgiveness. Well, Peter offers up seven times. 
Uh, a generous response. After all, it more than doubled what the rabbis were willing to uh, put on the table. And Peter may have been mirroring Jesus' own words uh, recorded in Luke 17, where Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Maybe where the seven came from. Well, Jesus responds here to Peter. I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Some translations render that 77 times. And what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that if someone sins against you 490 times, you should forgive him, but the 491st time, no go? No, of course not. Actually, he's making an allusion to the Old Testament here. In Genesis chapter 4, 15, we read that the Lord said to Cain, if anyone kills you, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And later in that same chapter, uh, his descendant, uh, Lamech, in chapter, in, in verse 24, in his sword song, celebrating his own vindictiveness, says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Well, Jesus isn't merely forbidding a vengeful spirit here. He transposes Lamech's cry for revenge into a call for radical forgiveness. So Jesus takes Peter's generous, even admirable offer of a number, seven times to forgive, and he multiplies it beyond what anyone would actually count. And he does this to make a point. His point is this. Forgiving other people when they sin against you grows out of something much bigger than mere mechanical bookkeeping. You're merely tallying up the record between you. Jesus is saying you simply cannot approach forgiveness with a calculating, quantitative approach. And he goes on to explain what he means characteristically with a parable to illustrate what it is he's talking about here. What's he getting at? Well, in this parable Jesus tells, we typically know it as the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, Jesus teaches us a couple of motives to show us how we ought to forgive and to move us to forgive one another. Well, first, Jesus says we're able to forgive other people as we come to understand just how much it is God has forgiven us. We're able to forgive others as we understand first how much God has forgiven us. Now, Jesus talks in this parable about a king who's settling his accounts, and he comes across a man, one of his servants, who owes him ten thousand talents. Now, some have tried to put a money uh, figure, you know, to bring that up into modern uh, money. It's, it's difficult to do that for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it's kind of hitting, trying to hit a moving target. But if we wanted to put a dollar figure on it, we could say, well, it's, it's hundreds of millions, maybe even billions, maybe even a billion dollars or more. In, in terms of our money today, as far as the impact that figure would have. It does help to put it in these terms. Jesus is talking here about someone who owed the king 10,000 talents. Well, a talent was generally what someone would earn in about 20 years. One talent would be, would, would be earned in about 20 years. And the debt is 10,000 talents. So the point is, this is a vast number, this practically an inconceivable amount. Well, the man can't pay. So the king orders him to be sold into slavery, his wife, his children, everything that he had, in order to repay the debt. 
Well, it's not going to come close to repaying the debt. Uh, a, a high price for a slave would be about a denarius, not much money. Uh, so the point wasn't the king was trying to recoup his losses here and get his money back. The point was his, exp- this, his action was an expression of justice. It was an expression of his wrath against this servant. Well, the, the, the servant in desperation falls down on his knees, begging, imploring the king, please be patient, I will pay you back everything. It's ridiculous. There's no way this guy could pay back. If he had a hundred lifetimes, it would not be enough to repay everything that he owed. And then the king does something amazing. He doesn't just say, okay, you've got more time. He just lets him go. He cancels the debt. He says, you're free. The debt is canceled. You may go your way. Forget about it. It's, it's erased. Billions. Gone. No more debt. You're free. Uh, I relieve you of that debt. You may go your way. Now, his action is a response to the servant's pleading. In verse 32, you know, he says, I canceled this debt because you pleaded with me. You begged me to. But it also moved out of the king's heart. It says here he took pity on him. See, the king was moved with compassion for this man in a hopeless situation. No way he was ever going to get out of it. And the king simply erases the debt, cancels it, and let him go. Now, this portion of the parable, this, this relationship of this indebted servant to the king is a picture of the relationship between God and us. The king, of course, represents God the Father. You and I are that indebted servant. That debt is our sin before God. And we can draw out several implications of what happened right here. This passage shows us the size of our sin debt before God. Just the immensity of our guilt, of our sin. You know, if we would put a dollar figure on it, it would be billions that we owed God. And of course, the point is not the literal amount. The point is that it's a debt that can never be repaid. It's a debt that we would never be able to settle up with God. Do you see your sinfulness before God in those terms? It also shows us how much is at stake. This man was about to lose everything, his wife, his children, his possessions, even himself, as a result of his debt. Now, for us, the stakes are higher. Because we sinners stand to lose everything that we have, including our souls, as we justly face the wrath of God in hell forever. It shows us the futility of our own efforts to pay back God. Have you ever played payback with God? Lord, I'll make it up to you this week. I'll, I'll give more this week. I will, I will be more regular in my church attendance. You know, I'll give more to uh, charitable organizations. I'll uh, read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'm going to make it up to you, God. You see the futility of that? Slave promises to pay everything back. How? With what? He can't. There's no way. He has no way to do it. And it's equally laughable that when we think by doing this or that, we're somehow going to pay God back or somehow make it up to God that we've sinned against him. But it also, of course, shows the grace of God in forgiving our sins. Cancels the debt. Imagine being that slave, knowing that kind of indebtedness and just being relieved of it. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's done with. It's over. 
Well, that's what God has done for us and our sins. The only difference is that God doesn't merely erase the debt. The debt was paid by another, paid by our Lord Jesus Christ. But the end result to us is the same as it was with this slave. The sin is forgiven. The debt is canceled. God didn't have to do it, just like this king didn't have to do what he did. It's his grace. It's his compassion. It's his free gift to us in Christ. You recognize the enormity of your sin against God. We're so good at minimizing it, so good at rationalizing it, so good at explaining it away, that we sometimes don't see it the way God does. But God sees it as this immense debt, and we should too. You recognize that your sin against God is no small trifling matter. Every sin, no matter how small you might think it, is cosmic treason against the Lord of heaven and earth. And nothing you've ever done or can do, nothing you will do, will make it up. Because of your wickedness, you deserve the fires of hell forever. You say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, relative to others, maybe you are, but don't you see that even your self-righteousness, even your pride in your own performance is more offensive to God than the immorality of that person you look down on? Jesus pronounced woes upon the Pharisees like he never pronounced upon the poor, adulterous woman, sinful woman at the well in Sychar. Do you see your sin for what it is? Even the most moral, ethical person has so violated God's laws, so sinned against the holiness of his character, that he deserves the fires of hell forever. Yet God in his mercy forgives that debt. We fall on our knees. We plead for his mercy on the basis of Christ's finished work. And God forgives us this vast, unpayable sin debt. You see, you'll never understand this parable until you feel the weight of that debt, the weight of your sin before God. And so to be able to forgive others, we first must grasp somehow the sheer magnitude, the unspeakable generosity, the lavish grace that God has shown us in forgiving us in Christ. That's the first thing. When we come to understand our forgiveness then we are able to begin to forgive others. But second, we're able to forgive others as we see that God's forgiving us requires us then to forgive others. And we see this in the second part of the parable that Jesus taught, where the servant, his huge debt, this this inconceivable debt, just canceled, goes out and encounters a fellow servant, a peer, someone on his level, not like the king who was above him, but someone on his level, fellow servant, Who owes him money? And it tells us here that this was a hundred denarii. Again, hard to put a dollar figure on it because that's somewhat meaningless anyway in the parable. It was, it was, it was a small figure. It was not a trifling amount. Uh, After all, the denarius was about a day's pay. So a hundred days wages is what we're talking about here. Not a trifling insignificant amount, but certainly not insurmountable either. This could be paid off, unlike the first, the servant's debt to his king. This could reasonably be paid off. His fellow servant, you know, could get on the Dave Ramsey plan and get his debt snowball going and, you know, start funneling money back and gradually get this thing paid off and get him out of his life. Uh, So, yes, it could happen. You see, he falls on his knees and begs 
when the servant demands payment, pay back what you owe. He falls on his knees. Be patient with me. I'll pay you back everything. And realistically, he could, given enough time to do so. And ironically, the servant, the first servant, seems to either miss or be unmoved by the similarity of his fellow servant's plea. And almost very similar words to the ones he himself used to plea for mercy from the king. He seems to miss that, or, or it doesn't move him, and he refuses. He's got the man by the neck, choking him, and no, no mercy, sends the man off to debtor's prison until he could pay back the debt. problem for him was there were witnesses. Some of the fellow servants who, uh, had, who had known what had happened with the king, maybe he had told them, maybe they'd witnessed that transaction itself, the canceling of his debts, were very disturbed by what happened. What disturbed them? The inequity of it. The incongruity of it. That's a wonderful word, children. You ought to know that word. It just means things that don't really go together. It's like saying something nasty to a friend with a smile on your face. That's incongruity. They don't really go together. And these other servants are saying, wait a minute, this guy was just forgiven this this immense debt. Then he turns around and is unwilling to forgive his his fellow servant here a debt that's that's almost infinitely smaller. What gives with that? So that's what bothered them, the inequity, the incongruity of it. And they go to the king, their master, and they tell him what happened. And notice the king's reaction. He is angry. Calls a servant in. Notice what he calls him. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? You see, that's the thing about God's grace. It's supposed to keep flowing. God doesn't like it when he shows grace and it meets a dam or a roadblock, a stoppage, a blockage, and it stops. The grace of God is supposed to flow to us and then through us. And when it flows to us and stops, God isn't pleased with that. And he refers to this man as wicked. And in his anger, in his wrath, his master turns him over to the jailers. The word means torturers. Until he should pay back all that he owed. You see, the parable teaches us the amazing forgiveness of God uh, toward our own sins. But that's not the whole point. The point is that we should forgive others just as God has forgiven us. If nothing more, it seems a point of equity, of justice. We've been forgiven. Should we not be willing to forgive others? But it's much more than that. As Paul says in, uh, in, in Colossians, in that passage that we've just read, we should forgive because God has forgiven us. And if God has forgiven us that immense sin debt that we owed him, how can we turn around and refuse to forgive the sin debt of someone else against us that is trifling By comparison. By comparison. Yes, people can sin against you in ways that are awful. In ways that are devastatingly painful. But even the worst that someone can do against you. Even the largest sin debt that someone on this earth could owe to you. Is nothing 
in comparison to your sin, the guilt of your sin against God. Why? Because God is infinitely holy. Sin against him incurs infinite guilt. The worst, and I mean the most unspeakable, unimaginable thing someone could do to you or those you love on this earth, and that sinfulness does not compare to the sinfulness that you have before God. Do you believe that? That's hard to grasp, isn't it? Because people could do some pretty horrid things to us here in this world. Extremely horrid. But their guilt against you is nothing compared to your guilt before a holy God. Notice what Jesus says in verse 35. He leaves the parable. The parable has ended. In verse 35, he, just, he simply makes an indicative statement. The significance of the parable. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. In case they didn't get the point of the parable, Jesus spells it out in very simple, stark terms. Just as that king threw the unmerciful servant, unforgiving servant, into prison until he pays back all that he owes, if you are an unforgiving person, my Father will throw you into hell to pay back everything that you owe. And when will that happen? Well, if your guilt against the holy God is infinite guilt, that's why hell is infinite torment. Torturers. Now, the point here is not that it's just a mechanical thing, that uh, forgiving uh, buys you salvation. The point is someone who is saved is someone who forgives. And notice it's not just an appearance. He says, unless you forgive your brother from the heart, real forgiveness, not just apparent. Uh, forgiving in the sense that we throw away our resentment at being wronged. To forgive from the heart means not just constraining or restraining our resentment, but letting go of it entirely until we can be free of its embittering influence. Jesus says, he didn't just say unless you say you forgive him, unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Again, not a mechanical thing. You forgive and you're saved. But someone who has been saved, someone who has experienced the riches of God's grace, is going to be someone who ultimately finds a way to forgive others because he himself has been so forgiven. Why must we forgive? Heaven or hell hangs in the balance. So if you're holding a grudge against someone this morning, you know, if you, if you lie awake at night thinking of ways to get even, taking pleasure in, uh, in uh, seeking the downfall of another, if only in schemes in your mind, you know will never be implemented, but it sure is fun to think about. Someone that you think not in a million years, would you forgive what they did to you? I hope that you will take Jesus' words here very seriously and rethink your position as well as perhaps your professed relationship with a forgiving God. Jesus could not be more plain. When a brother or sister who has sinned against you comes and asks your forgiveness, if you yourself delight in the forgiveness of God toward your sins, you have no right to refuse to forgive the sins of your brother. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great author, uh, put it this way, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that's left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. Now, a couple questions that might come to mind 
First, both of these uh, interactions involve someone coming asking for mercy, asking for grace. What if the person never asks? What if they never come to you and ask forgiveness? Well, any, any situation calls for its own wisdom. It may be that you are not in a position of, of being able to or even needing to verbally offer forgiveness. But I'll tell you this, the starting point is to follow the, the process that we saw earlier uh, and go to the person and talk to them. But what if they still refuse to ask forgiveness? Do you forgive? Well, I think that in your heart, you must. Whether you verbalize that to the person or not, you have to let it go. Otherwise, you're going to be consumed with anger and bitterness. It's just going to fester and get worse with time. You give the matter over to God. You trust him to set all wrongs right. It may happen in this life. It may not happen till the world has come, but rest assured it will happen. And it's not your place to seek vengeance of any kind, but continue to reflect the grace of God for that person that God has shown to you. Now, second, Jesus is talking here about relationships between brothers. If you do not forgive your brother, what if the person who's sitting against you is not a Christian? Well, I think the same principles still apply. You respond with grace whether or not they ask your forgiveness. After all, they need someone to show them and teach them what the grace of God looks like, that otherworldly mercy and love that God showed us. And by the way, their eternal destiny through your witness, and maybe your witness would change their eternal destiny, their eternal destiny is infinitely more important than your wounded ego, than your wounded pride. So be forewarned. We can know these truths, uh, even having experienced God's grace in our lives doesn't make forgiveness easy. The ideas are simple, but they're not easy. Uh, Again, Andre Sue puts it this way. Forgiveness is a brutal mathematical transaction done daily with fully engaged faculties. It's my pain instead of yours. I eat the debt. I absorb the misery I wanted to dish out on you. And you go scot-free. She says, beware the forgiveness that is tendered soon after the injury. Be suspicious Real forgiveness needs a time lag, for it is wrought in private agony before it ever comes to public amnesty. All true acts of courage are thus done in secret. She speaks of the pain of forgiveness. You yourself absorb the pain rather than returning it on another. Well, the Lord understands that pain. The Lord understands the cost of forgiving another because, you see, the Lord suffered the cost of his own son. He absorbed the pain of the wrong done to him in the person of Jesus on the cross so that he could forgive you. Yes, forgiving can be painful. It means I eat the debt. But God ate a far bigger debt to forgive us than you ever will to forgive another person. Andre Sue continues, And now the unthinkable, not only to forgive, but to seek the good. Nature abhors a vacuum, and Jesus admits of no middle ground between hate and love. Pray for him. Not merely forgiving, releasing the debt, but seeking the good of that person who has hurt you. In her book, Tramp for the Lord, Corey Ten Boom tells how several years after her experience in the Ravensbrück uh, Nazi concentration camp, 
in Germany, she met face to face with one of the most cruel and heartless of her guards during her years of imprisonment. She remembered especially how this guard had humiliated and degraded herself and her sister Betsy and mocking them in the delousing showers that they had to go through. And she'd been in an outreach service in a church speaking on the subject of forgiveness. When at the end of the service, that former Nazi prison guard stood before her with his hand outstretched. Will you forgive me? Corey Ten Boom, in her own words, I stood there with coldness clutching at my heart, but I know that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I pray, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current started in my shoulder, raced down into my arms, sprang into our clutched hands, and then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I've never known the love of God so intensely as I did in that moment. Corey Ten Boom went on to say that to forgive is to set a prisoner free. But in forgiving, you may discover that the prisoner was you. Let's pray. Father, we pray to be so awash in the ocean of your love and your grace, so overwhelmed with your forgiveness, that the shortcomings of others and even, Lord, their their grave sins against us would more and more be seen but to be a trifling thing. And, Lord, give us grace to forgive as we have been forgiven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.